The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba. By my side here in New York is Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Hello. And Anna Shamansky. Hi, Anna. Hello. This week, we're going to talk about oil, including a major rift between Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Later in the program, our Hong Kong-based colleague Robin Mack will lead a discussion with Pete Sweeney and Yuna Galani about the state of the economy in Japan, China, and India amidst a viral outbreak and plunging crude prices. Now let's talk about black gold. Oil prices are down about a fifth, a startling drop that seemed to kick off with a skirmish among major oil producers in Saudi Arabia and Russia. Joining us from Dallas to help us sort through this mess is Lauren Silva Laughlin. Howdy, Lauren. Hello. So uh, let's kick this off by uh, either Anthony or Lauren or both of you. Please explain to me what happened late last week. Um, There was an OPEC meeting and then oil prices collapsed. What happened? Yeah, let's put some context on this. First of all, you've got um, oil prices were coming down anyway, right? So you've got weakened demand. You've got the coronavirus problems, weakening demand in China and elsewhere. Uh, You've also uh, had, at least in the US or parts of the US, a pretty warm winter. So demand has been down. So prices were down. So back in December, you already had a pretty big cut um, by OPEC and OPEC Plus, which includes Russia and others that are not formerly part of OPEC. Last week, Saudi Arabia wanted to bring in another cut. So I think it was at one and a half million barrels a day, Lauren, they wanted to cut on it in addition to the two and a half million or so back in December. So that sort of sets up where we were last week. So Lauren, why don't you sort of tell us the nitty gritty of how things then went wrong last week and how we got to where we are now? Sure. So uh, what happened over the weekend was there was an OPEC meeting and, and Russia, who's a sort of loose member of what they call OPEC plus, so not a direct member of OPEC, but has been working very closely with OPEC as oil prices have come under pressure, essentially said, look, we're not going to be cutting uh, our oil production in the way that we have in the past. And this kicked off a price war. Um, Saudi essentially lowered its selling price of oil, and that made the oil market collapse. Um, And it's it's pretty fascinating because, you know, as Anthony says, there's sort of two issues going on. First is that coronavirus had started to take down oil projections over the past month. And this is, this was sort of threatening prices already. And, um, and so then you kind of layered on a price war on top of that. So the question is, why have they done this? And there's lots of answers to that. But the sort of reason and ultimate consequence is that it really puts U.S. shale, which had been the swing producer on the back foot and probably in one of the worst positions of the largest oil producers throughout the world. Um, And essentially what's happened is Russia and Saudi have said our economies can withstand low oil prices for longer than U.S. oil producers can withstand low oil prices. And, you know, there's probably a lot of truth to that. So, Lauren, help me understand this. So um, can you kind of explain more about what the rift was between Saudi Arabia and Russia? So Saudi Arabia, traditionally one of the levers that OPEC has um, to boost oil prices is to cut 
uh, production, which, you know, I guess helps with demand. Is, is that correct? It effectively takes supply out of the market, which kind of puts a floor on on the price. But from Saudi's okay. standpoint, um, you think about it this way. Let's just I'm just going to make up numbers for, easy, you know, for the sake of doing math. Um, let's say they produce 100 barrels at five dollars or 50 barrels at $10, they, Saudi essentially brings in the same amount of revenue. And as oil demand falls, um, what they're going to care about in the interim, just because they have so much oil, is bringing in the amount of revenue that they need to keep producing or keep their economy going. Um, so they might seem like they're burning money on each barrel, incremental barrel of oil, in the interim, but if they feel like they're going to be able to put U.S. producers or Russian producers or anybody else out of business and then later be able to take oil up to $100 a barrel, they're going to be willing to make that calculation. Okay, so they're going to take an early hit in, in order to kind of be in a better position down the road. Exactly. And, but, but, and but, but, why, but why now? I think what, what we're trying to get is, is why now? Because up until Friday, I mean, I think on you know, late last week, the OPEC members agreed to the cut that Saudi was pushing for. And then Saudi flips, literally and figuratively, the following day after um, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, says or doesn't say anything. Um, why the, go the full 180 and say, well, we can't have a cut uh, in production, so we're just going to boost it and offer... Um, uh, price incentives to Europe and others to take our, our, our oil. Why, why, do, why did they do that suddenly? Saudi effectively runs OPEC. Even up to this point, it was mostly Saudi and Russia making the decisions on behalf of OPEC+. Plus. And I think what Saudi is really doing is saying, we control this market. They are sending a message to Russia and everybody else to say, we control the market, we control the supply, we can do what we want. And you guys are going to be the ones that are going to be, you know, out of luck when we make these choices. I'm wondering how, if we're trying to figure out, like, what might happen moving forward, like, how does this relate to the last time that Saudi Arabia did this a few years ago? Because there was a different oil minister at the time, right? And I, and I, I feel like that may also be playing into this. Well, last time this happened and oil prices collapsed, so, I mean, putting a, a slightly different context on that, Lauren, it's basically, you know, let's not forget that that um, countries, you know, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Russia, whatever, in general, countries and governments control, what, 80% give or take of fossil fuel supply and production. Only 20% uh, is, is controlled by the likes of, you know, Shell, BP, Exxon, Chevron. So they have a lot of power. Um, but in the meantime, they've seen the U.S. become the biggest uh, single producer, I think, of, of oil because of shale, especially out of Texas. And so, as you were saying earlier, this whole idea that the U.S. has become the sort of the uh, the, the price of oil has, in, in many respects, been set by shale in the U.S. becoming such a big player. Saudi Arabia is trying to upend that, and maybe, like you said, maybe trying to put um, companies out of business in the U.S. But I think that's going to be the short. That's a short-term issue where you know bankruptcy allows others to come back in and and start it up again when oil prices go up. You know, in terms of trying to figure out, like, all the different players here, it's like, um, I think part of the disagreement you had, if I'm not mistaken, between Russia and Saudi Arabia was that Russia is a bit more concerned about the shale players. And I think partly that has to do with their own economic position and partly that has to do with their their geopolitical tensions with the United States. 
I think a lot of that is going on. I mean, you know, we have heard, you know, scuttlebutt about U.S. sanctions on Russia. And so Russia is trying to pull these political levers um, on on, uh, the places that it can. And and the oil market certainly is one of those. The problem is, of course, that doesn't make... Uh, U.S. political leaders happy. The difference is that the U.S. market is a capitalistic market, right? It's like an open, it's a free open market as opposed to the closed markets or the state-controlled markets that are in Russia and Saudi. And this actually puts the U.S. producers and the large uh, oil companies like Exxon on the back foot because they cannot move together in unison to try to pull any levers in this in this market. And and frankly, you know, the U.S. government really can't do very much, if anything, to try to combat an oil price war, which the governments of Russia and, and Saudi can do. Um, and so this kind of these two buckets, if you call, could call them that, in the oil market is what makes this really fascinating, but it also is what puts American producers at a huge disadvantage. So they're kind of in the middle of this tug of war. So can you just also explain a little more about why Russia was battling Saudi Arabia? Because what, where was the disconnect? I believe it's so Saudi Arabia wanted to put a floor under the price. Right. And I think Russia actually thought like, well, no, that's just going to help the U.S. shale producers. Right. That, that's exactly right. I think Russia's also got an economic equation that they are working on, too. And that economic equation is different than Saudi. They have a lower economic break-even price than Saudi. Um, and so they felt like they could withstand lower oil prices than maybe Saudi wanted to. What Saudi's saying is we can operate our economy at a deficit for a longer period of time. Got it. Right. So Saudi Arabia wanted to cut production. Russia said no. And that was the tension. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly so the, right. The, yeah. So the fallout the fall from this line, you've already mentioned, obviously, that the, the U.S. producers now are going to be struggling. Um, already were, frankly. A lot of them already weren't uh, making money. But just this week, we've already seen one big player that made a big bet on shale last year, Occidental Petroleum, uh, basically completely change its financial strategy. Uh, which you, I think you argued this week in a column that means that the CEO is probably you know not long for this not long for for, for the seat. Mm, yeah, Occidental is an absolute disaster, um, and probably the poster child for what we'll consider as the worst decisions throughout this kind of oil boom, if you could call it that, here in Texas and in the United States. Um, the CEO Vicky Hall last year launched a big deal to buy a rival, overpaid, um, overlevered, and took a really bad sort of. Uh, slug of cash from Warren Buffett. It was a binary bet at the time. She was kind of thinking oil, you know, I, I would guess she was thinking oh, if oil prices rise, this pays off. Of course, they haven't. And the day after, I mean, truly the day after oil prices collapse, she slashed their dividend by more than 80%. And she's, you know, effectively lost all or any credibility she had left with shareholders. Um, so she's likely going to have to go. And let's, let's just make it clear that a lot of these old companies, I think Occidental was one that, that, that I think almost openly said it last year, uh, are trying to run themselves so much so that they can, in fact, afford to pay big dividends. So for her to then turn around and cut it at all, let alone such a big way, really is a, a terrible sign of, of, of her overall strategy. I, it is. And I think that she's not the only one in trouble. She's sort of the large or one of the larger U.S. producers, but um, there's plenty of smaller ones that are going to be in mm. big trouble as well. Yeah. So that means we could see yet more consolidation, although from a completely different base. Flipping it around, though, there's also that there, there, of course there will be advantages from the lower oil price for for um, people and companies around the world. Although it's it's hard to really take it as a big advantage given what's going on with the virus. So 
lower gas prices, which I know President Trump has been talking about a lot. But if people aren't going to work as much, uh, there's not much demand. Um, what has happened, I think, that the airlines are, are probably very happy about this. Just listening to a couple of them this week, Delta said it thinks um, it can save $2 billion and and American Airlines, I think, said $3 billion, or maybe in United, this year alone, assuming they keep up the same pace of flights just from the price of all dropping, considering that they are also slashing uh, how many flights they're having and looking for ways to raise emergency cash just in case they get in trouble if there's longer-term problems. The oil price really is giving them a very big helping hand just when they need it. So there are some little pockets of... I'm not sure brightness is right, quite the way to put it, but certainly <laughs> this is helping a few players out. Um, Yeah, I think, too, that there's a lot of sort of discussion about whether lower oil prices ultimately help GDP grow. I think the issue is when the oil price or the oil demand estimates come down, which feeds into oil price um, as a result of GDP falling or global growth falling, then it's kind of this offsetting mechanism whereby lower oil prices really don't make up for the amount that that economic growth is coming down, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's also that the timing's bad as well, right? So if you think who else ought to benefit in this kind of environment where suddenly uh, gas prices drop, you think, well, car makers, especially those in America which love to make um, gas-guzzling SUVs. And yet if you look at the likes of Ford, GM, whatever, their share prices are way down because basically demand for going out and buying cars isn't there at the moment because everyone's worried about having to or increasingly worried about hoarding cash right so why do you really want to go out to a potentially crowded parking lot with the virus spreading around to try and buy a car that you don't necessarily need just because gas prices are down so there's no often you would get that kind of benefit you get higher car sales you're not going to get that so on the note of of tiny pockets of sunshine um Maybe one of the other benefits for this is that it's going to make countries like the United States, I think, take a hard look at energy dependence on oil. Uh, you would hope so, because, yeah, again, go back to what we were saying earlier. America's become the largest producer. Um, the idea that America could become energy independent, energy secure, um, as in not relying on a war-ravaged Middle East over the past 50, 60 years or longer, um, has always been a goal of successive administrations, and, and Trump's administration is no different. And here you are in a situation where, with America being the largest producer and able to do it uh, in their own backyard and able to use the, the oil themselves, shouldn't this be great? What this crisis shows us, again, which we see in every single crisis going back however many decades, is that because the oil price is fungible, it means you are still prone to the vagaries of tin pot dictators throwing their toys out of the pram on the other side of the world, whether it's starting a war with tanks or whether it's starting a war with prices. So why would we ever want to make sure that our energy security for the future relies on fossil fuels when we are still at the mercy of people in other parts of the world? Another way of putting this, putting my climate hat on, is this should be a really good wake-up sign to invest far more in renewable energy, whether it's wind, solar, um, energy storage technology, transmission technology. There are issues still there that you can't, they're not quite ready to take on the full load that, that fossil fuels give us. Um, and you've know, got to think about nuclear as well, I suppose. But to me, this just screams fossil fuels will never be the answer for energy security. It just isn't possible. In a completely different scenario to the ones we normally see in the past, think of the oil price shock in the 70s, this yet again shows us no matter what happens, when there is a spat or a big problem abroad, we in America and the Western world who rely too much on fossil fuels still get hit. 
Yes. And agree that for any energy investor, if you're thinking about where to put your putative dollar right now, if you look at Occidental's stock price, which has fallen 80% in the past year, uh, I think you're probably going to think twice about investing in a fossil fuel company at this point. All right. Well, there you have it. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you both. Hi, everyone. I'm Robin Mack here in Hong Kong, and I'm joined by Pete Sweeney, as well as Yuna Galani in Mumbai. So this week, we've seen a shock plunge in oil prices, the continued global spread of the coronavirus, as well as the big Fed rate cut earlier. These events have sent Asian stock markets spinning and have destabilized currencies. Hardest hit is Japan. Pete, tell us a bit about what's happening. I mean, this is the third largest economy. Why are they sort of in the front lines of all this volatility? Well, they're kind of cursed by um, what some countries might consider a good thing. People like to put their money into the Japanese yen when things are going badly. Um, So it's called a safe haven currency because, you know, when global equity markets collapse, people tend to run into yen. There are technical reasons for that. Um, The problem for Japan right now, though, is this does not serve economic policy very well. Broader macroeconomy was already heading into recession thanks to a combination of factors, but the coronavirus is certainly a major one, scrambling Japanese companies' supply lines in China. It's hurting external demand. You know, and then you have the Fed come through and cut rates, which sort of rattled global stock markets. People start selling off. What do you know? The yen suddenly puts on, goes on this tear. It goes from about 112 yen for a dollar up to 101 at one point. That's a rise of like a strengthening of like 11%. That makes everything, throws everything off. Um, monetary policy, it's rough for big exporters like Nissan, you know, Hitachi. These guys make an enormous amount of money overseas. And so naturally that destabilizes the, the share index, about 60% of revenues that listed Japanese companies are earned overseas. And so that's plunged. So now the government is scrambling, trying to figure out what we're going to do with monetary policy. How are we going to stimulate this? Can we intervene in the Forex market to get the value of the yen back up? They really don't have any good options though. And what they're doing right now, frankly, I think is just hoping that everybody settles down and things get back a little closer to normal. So aggressive, risky moves are not necessary. There's quite a lot of exporters in Japan. How's the oil price drop? Like, how is that sort of playing through? Well, I think for a lot of Asia, and I'm interested in what Yuna has to say about about India here, but for a lot of Asian countries are not huge oil producers. Um, Japan has absolutely no oil of its own. It imports 100% of it. So on paper, you would think that's a a good thing. You know, Japanese companies won't pay as much for the energy they need. But of course, the flip side of of low oil prices is that they are also kind of this leading indicator of soft demand. And they also destabilize a bunch of bonds. There's a bunch of of assets that are connected to these prices. So on... a little bit of oil price adjustment, I think they would cheer. You know, the 30% fall we saw is just very worrisome. And certainly nobody in Japan appears to be be celebrating it that much. Ditto for, for China. But I mean, here, I'd like to hear about India. I think a lot of what Pete said is right. What we have seen in India is a huge crash in the stock market in the last few days. But th- there's a lot of things going on. So we don't just have the coronavirus outbreak and a massive falling crude prices. We also have had the collapse of a really important financial lender, an important bank called Yes Bank. So there's so many things going on that it's hard to untangle. I mean, you know, falling crude prices should be good for India and Japan and for China. I mean, it cuts the import bill for all of them. 
And, and, and that's only a good thing, especially when you have a stretched public finances as India does. But when you have such a dramatic fall in crude price, it also suggests that beyond the Saudi led price war that there is going to be it's a it's a big indicator that there's just no demand in the world and if there's no demand in the world and people are really fleeing for safe havens like the yen it also means that countries like india are going to see this huge withdrawal of capital because they depend on foreign investors and india's uh, equity markets are sort of amongst the the priciest of the emerging markets and and you know so, so that that's all kind of teetering and it's not it's not a good thing, even though in theory the crude prices should be lower. Crude prices should be a good thing. You mentioned sort of the the equity markets in India. There's going to be a pretty sizable IPO coming up soon. I know you've been following this. Can you just tell us sort of what you're expecting? You know, from this big IPO, especially at a time like this now. You know, I think it's not to say that there's no animal spirits left in Asia. I think really for select stocks there will be, and I think we have to remember that compared to past crises where, you know, Asian countries didn't have very strong FX reserves. That's, you know, that's not the case. India today has one of the highest level of foreign exchange reserves that it's ever had. And so, you know, there's no reason to think that things could, that everything's going to fall apart. But um, it just means that sort of people have become very choicey and the, and, the, and the stocks that they're interested in are trading on sort of higher value and the ones that they're not are just being dumped. Speaking of high valuations and animal spirits, you know, I'd like to talk about China. I mean, it looks like the stock market's been pretty volatile, but, you know, relatively, they've seemed to outperform peers across the Asia region. Of all the countries that's going to get the hardest hits, it's Chinese companies, Chinese supply chains and factories that are definitely getting going to be on the receiving end of this up front. But the equity markets have not been that bothered by it, which I don't think says anything that good about Chinese equity markets, frankly, <laughs> because there's really no reason to think that Chinese companies are not going to feel this. But what they do appear to be pricing in a bit is high expectations that this will finally force the government to really come through on monetary stimulus, to really open up the taps, put more cash in the bank, hand out some money, um, let everybody have some fun in the real estate and we, market. We've sort of seen signs that sort of China is sort of about to do that, right? Depends on how you read it. Certainly the, the share prices appear to have high expectations for that a bit, but they have given up quite a bit and they're now in negative territory for the year, whereas they used to be up. The question is like how the money is going to flow through. The government doesn't want to just set off a stock rally that's disconnected from economic reality. They don't want to just print a bunch of fund money and have people go out and speculate it with, with it. They needed to get it to laid off people, to struggling small companies. They need to get the infrastructure built, but they need to get the right stuff built. All of that's really difficult, um, especially given China's existing debt load. So it's gonna be a lot harder than it looks. I mean, right now, state media is trying to cheer everybody up and, and kind of send the message out that, hey, we're getting back to work. You know, the China model works. We contain the virus and, you know, we're back in business. That makes for great propaganda. Is that going to reflect actual financial reality a year from now? Um, that's, there's a lot of risk in that assumption. And if you believe that in the longer term that, you know, businesses around the world may choose not to have quite as much of their supply chain concentrated in China, and that Absolutely. this has been the sort of wake-up call for that, then that's a kind of a long-term drag on valuations as well, right? Yeah, no, the reversal of globalization, all this paranoia, this is all bad for China. I mean, even the talk about, like, 
you know, there aren't enough masks around. Well, now people are pointing out that like, well, China has all these medical masks. China dominates all these parts of the pharmaceutical industry. For our self-sufficiency security purposes, we need to disconnect. I mean, none of that serves the interest of the export sector. Okay, that's really interesting. So let's leave it at there and we'll keep an eye on the markets. Thank you, Pete and Yuna. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Robin. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Lauren Silva-Laughlin, Robin Mack, Pete Sweeney, and Yuna Galani. And hats off to our producers, Sharon Lamb, Freddie Joyner, Rich Mitchell, and Ross Shoulder. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.